Why worry alone? The Rocky Mountain Myrick Suicide Risk Management Consultation Program provides free one-on-one consultation for any provider, both community and VA, who serves veterans at risk for suicide. For more information about this program and to check out all our resources, please visit the consult page at www.myrec.va.gov slash VISN19 slash consult. To initiate a consult, please email srmconsult at va.gov. Hashtag never worry alone. everyone and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host Adam Hofberg and today's podcast is on a topic that is critical to effective suicide prevention and we'll be chatting today about lethal means safety. We are joined today by our guest Dr. Joseph Simonetti. He's a physician and suicide prevention researcher with the Rocky Mountain Myrex and welcome Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got on this path. Sure. Uh, so I am an internal, internal medicine physician. Uh, I trained in uh, Pittsburgh. And after that, I went out to Seattle and I um, got a public health degree and started a health services research fellowship where I was looking at access to care and quality of care among our veteran patients. Um, and I, I think like a lot of Americans um, have been affected by gun violence. I've lost loved ones to gun violence. And it was uh, actually almost five years ago today uh, that the Newtown shooting happened. And after that, I think I um, spent a lot of time wondering what more I could do as a researcher and clinician and uh, public health practitioner to try and address the large burden of firearm injuries that we have nationally. And it, it just so happened um, that in Seattle, I was also working with a, a group of um, prolific injury prevention researchers who had been doing firearm research for years and years and years. And uh, they sort of took me under their wing, and I started doing work with them. And after a couple of years of doing sort of broad community-based firearm interventions and looking at firearm safety and injury prevention among uh, pediatric and adolescent populations, I really felt that my passion and what my, my key interest was was suicide prevention um, because of just uh, the burden of suicide nationally and uh, personal um, losses that I've had in my life. And, uh, you know, with the suicide um, uh, issue that we have among our veteran population, it seemed like this was the key place to do it. And so I came out to the to Denver, to the Rocky Mountain Myrec, uh, to merge my, my two passions, which was uh, suicide prevention among veterans and firearm safety. Excellent. Well, we're so happy to have you here today and look forward to learning more from you. Many of us are already familiar with the topic of suicide and the issue um, within the U.S., uh, particularly among veterans. But there's a lot of focus right now on how we can improve our mental health system of care and really enhance suicide prevention across the system. Why are we focusing on lethal means of safety today? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think if we're going to put an honest foot forward and make a real effort to prevent suicide among our veterans, we have to have an open conversation about the methods 
uh, and the means that individuals actually use to harm themselves. Um, and when it comes to veteran suicide, um, that means having an open discussion about firearms. Nationally and in the veteran population, uh, most suicides are firearm-related. And actually, um, most gun deaths in the United States of America are suicide. It's a common misperception that homicide is actually the most common uh, firearm death uh, nationally. It's actually not. Um, uh, when you look at suicide attempts, um, 90% of individuals who will attempt a suicide using a firearm will actually die from that result. Now, compare that to the combined mortality of all other suicide attempts nationally. Only 5% of those attempts result in death. And so there's a huge disparity um, in the lethality between firearms and the other common methods that individuals use to harm themselves. Um, we also know from some recent data released by um, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs that veterans are more likely to die by firearm suicide uh, than um, uh, uh, adults in the general population. So really when we're talking about veterans and we're talking about veteran suicide, we have to have a conversation about firearms. Very good. And, you know, it, it, it is clear that we need to have these conversations around lethal means safety. What I'd like to learn more about today is what the evidence says around how that works and whether it's effective. Um, could you start us, start us off in that direction? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That's sort of the, the crux of the issue here. And so first, the bigger picture is that um, there is um, a tremendous amount of information that lethal means safety is important um, and that lethal means safety um, is effective in preventing suicides and not just related to firearms. Um, specifically, when we talk about guns and guns in the United States, we know that the rate of firearm ownership and firearm access uh, is strongly correlated with suicide rates across all of our 50 states. Um, it, and what does that mean? That means that the number of people who own firearms per, say, 100,000 of the population correlates strongly with the number of people who die by suicide per 100,000 of the population. Now, a number of uh, public health researchers have gone back and tried to sort out well, what what is the issue there? Is it really just the gun access? Um, and have asked very smart questions such as, are people who live in firearms simply more suicidal or depressed, or do they have more mental health issues than individuals who don't live in houses with guns? And the answer across the board is no. The suicide risk factors between those who do and don't live with firearms are essentially the same. It's really the access to the firearm and the lethality of the firearm that makes a difference. Mm. I just need a moment to digest that because I think you touched on a couple important things there. One is guns don't make people more suicidal. And, you know, two is that access is, is a huge factor because we're talking about a method that's extremely lethal. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I'm happy to. It's quite simple, really. What I'm saying is that individuals who live in homes with firearms are really no different from individuals who don't live in homes with firearms in terms of their suicide risk factors. It's really just that they have access to a highly lethal method of suicide. And individuals who attempt uh, suicide using a firearm, 90% of the time they'll die. Mm, very important. So let's um, talk a little bit more about how we have these conversations and how we you know, help our patients when they're in these situations. Um, so could you walk us through an example? Maybe you have a patient you're concerned about at risk for suicide, and how do we bring lethal means safety into the conversation? It's a great question. So this is, um, we, we sort of talk about this as if this is an anecdote. It's actually not. Um, for those of us who practice in the VA, we know that this is common, and this is something that happens on a, a daily basis among our patients. Um, and it's not just the concern of our patients. It's not just our concern. 
um, when people are having something like an emotional crisis, patients and their families are concerned about their own suicide risk. Um, so the first thing we do when we identify that suicide risk, particularly for somebody who's in emotional crisis, um, we're obviously going to make sure that he or she is receiving all the enhanced mental health services the VA um, can offer. That's obviously step one. Um, but if I'm pri- providing the best care that I can, um, I'm also going to bring up lethal means safety. And of course, you know, this isn't just about guns. Um, my discussion is, um, uh, is I focus on whatever means are relevant for my patient. Uh, but the reality is that one out of every two veterans nationally owns a firearm or lives in a household with a firearm that's present. So um, this is a frequent topic of discussion that we have. Um, the key is really that suicidal crises are often very brief. Um, one really well-done study looked at a couple hundred individuals who had survived a nearly lethal suicide attempt and asked, um, at what moment did you decide to end your life and how long did it take you to act? And about 25% of those survivors said that they made a decision to harm themselves and had acted within five minutes. And so the key to lethal means safety is really anything that puts time and distance between um, someone in crisis and an act um, that it's irreversible is something that can help save our veterans' lives. So lethal means safety options, one of the conversations we bring up, uh, particularly for those who live in homes with firearms or have access to firearms through any other mechanism, um, is, is what can we do temporarily with that firearm um, to keep you safe until you're feeling better. I think the most evidence-based recommendation I have is temporary off-site storage. You're going through a difficult time. Um, I think it's important uh, for you to at least consider um, taking your firearm and putting it elsewhere. Um, Store it with one of your co-veterans. Put it in storage. um, Take it to the shooting range, and oftentimes they'll have free lockers for people. They'll hold on to firearms for individuals. Keep it with a family member um, until you're feeling better, until your treatment is showing some effect. Um, Now, that's not always um, a recommendation that's going to be consistent with my patient's values, and that's totally fine. Um, but it is my first recommendation. But for those um, for whom it's not consistent, there are a number of other things that you can do with a firearm to keep you safe. Um, lock and unload the firearm. Uh, some, uh, many gun owners actually have a lot of knowledge about firearms and can do things like remove the firing pin, which effectively um, makes the firearm inaccessible to somebody during a crisis. And the key, I think, um, with those latter options for somebody who's going to lock the firearm or unload it and perhaps still keep it on their property is maybe lock it and uh, have a trusted family member change the number combination. Or uh, lock it, take the key to the lock, and, um, you know, Uh, take it to um, uh, the shooting range and keep it with one of your friends um, so that you don't have access to that firearm during a crisis or until you're feeling better. Excellent. And you raised some great, very helpful tips and also just the tone of the conversation that it's in line with the patient's values and really a collaborative process to figure out what are some good options to safely store your firearm in this situation. Yeah, that's a great point. So this isn't something that I get to prescribe. This isn't like a medication. Um, This isn't a CAT scan. Um, This is um, a consideration of a behavior change. And for those of us who work with patients, whether it's in mental health, primary care, uh, surgical medicine, um, we're we're highly aware that if we're making recommendations that are not consistent with um, something our veteran considers to be within their value system, um, then, then the recommendation isn't really worthwhile. And so that's why 
Um, we, we do have our most evidence-based recommendations, but for those that it doesn't work for, there are other things that we can do, and that's perfectly fine. This isn't about uh, me prescribing something and my patient agreeing to it. It's uh, working together in a collaborative fashion uh, to come up with um, a lethal means safety solution um, that works for everybody. Thanks for explaining that, Joe. Um, these conversations are so important, and we need to you know, help bring them into routine clinical practice and help clinicians feel more comfortable and competent having these conversations. What's going on, and how are we going to do that? Great question. So you know, the, the place to start, I think, really is provider training here. Um, you know, on average, I think veterans are far more comfortable with the topic of firearms, firearm safety, firearm function uh, than most clinicians are. Uh, you know, I remember in medical school learning quite a bit um, about diabetes and insulin, because obviously you can't treat somebody with diabetes unless you know something about insulin. Um, I don't remember learning any language about firearms or anything about firearm function. So the first place to start, I think, is really to familiarize our mental health providers and our clinicians and our suicide prevention staff um, with some of the language um, around firearms and uh, you know basic firearm safety and basic firearm function. Um, when it comes to lethal means safety, I mentioned that I think you know the number one recommendation we have for for people is really temporary offsite storage um, is the key if that's consistent with their values. But again, if that isn't, then locking and unloading a firearm is a secondary option that is also a reasonable alternative. There are um, dozens of different devices um, and, and ways in which you can go about locking up a firearm. And I don't think most providers could tell you much about those. Most providers couldn't probably tell you why a, a standard trigger lock should probably not be used on a Glock handgun. So if we're going to be um, Having these conversations about lethal means safety and making recommendations, there's a lot of provider training um, that's going to need to come along. Um, and after that, just like anything, when we um, uh, do counseling or have these conversations in clinic on nearly any clinical topic, there's a lot of research in the background that happens to figure out how to make these conversations um, reasonable, effective, and acceptable to our patients. Um, that, uh, that work, uh, when it comes to firearms and lethal means safety, is really in its infancy, and there's a lot more um, <clears throat> that we need to know about having these conversations. Um, and, and really, as I said, um, we need to really improve our understanding about the different types of lethal means safety options that are out there and um, how to make recommendations that are consistent with both the values um, and the preferences and the needs of, of our veteran firearm owners. Um, again, there are a, num a number of different locking options out there for firearms, um, but we don't really know how to align those different options in our recommendations with the preferences um, uh, of our veteran firearm owners, in particular how they use their firearms. I think one of the key components uh, of this whole effort is really finding better ways to build partnerships within the firearm community. This is, um, this is already happening. So the National Shooting Sports Foundation has already partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to uh, co-develop some uh, firearm-specific lethal means safety materials for suicide prevention. Um, in multiple states, gun shop owners and shooting range owners are partnering with suicide prevention organizations to co-develop materials um, to promote lethal means safety and to help uh, gun shop owners and shooting range owners identify potential customers um, who appear or may uh, be in um, emotional crisis. Um, so a lot of work is really being done uh, to build some of the bridges with the firearm community to really help us understand um, how we can be more effective in our lethal means safety conversations, but also to help um, enroll them in our efforts uh, to prevent suicides among their uh, customers. So I think you've done a really good job of explaining why it's so important to have these conversations. Um, but one of the questions we get sometimes is, what do veterans and other people think about this topic? And could you expand on that for us? 
Yeah, happy to. Um, you know, obviously, uh, issues around firearms and firearm ownership um, are contentious topics um, right now in the United States. Uh, but, you know, my experience and anecdotally experience um, I've heard from gun shop owners, shooting range owners, um, et cetera, is that these conversations um, actually go quite well. Emmy Betts from the University of Colorado School of Medicine recently reported some findings from a nationally representative sample of American adults um, in which 60% of Americans and 50% of actually gun-owning Americans reported that it's at least sometimes appropriate to have these conversations about firearms in clinical settings. It's important to note that um, this is just among the national population. These aren't individuals who are specifically identified as having high suicide risk. And I think looking at some of the uh, pediatric literature and the primary care literature literature, it's likely that if we were to ask this question among those with uh, mental health risk factors for suicide, um, there would probably be even more acceptability um, within those groups. There have been a couple of uh, focus group studies specifically within veterans done um, to really ask the question, um, is it really appropriate to have these conversations within the context of suicide prevention? And certainly um, clinicians and administrators um, agreed that these conversations are appropriate, but also um, veterans with mental health risk factors for suicide and their families also agreed that this is a very reasonable discussion to be having in clinical settings. And so I think we can say that there is a lot of support for this nationally and among our veteran population and our patients to have these conversations. Joe, before we let you go today, I want you to try to address maybe those who think we shouldn't have these conversations or we shouldn't be discussing firearms. What would you say to those people? Well, I think the first thing I would ask is is why they feel that way, because I think um, these conversations are important to have, and I'd like to hear more about that specific opinion. But in general, I, I, I have two things to say. The first is that um, the reason we should be doing this is first because it works, because it's been shown elsewhere. I think the most uh, poignant example is in the Israeli Defense Force, where a number of years ago uh, their military um, recognized that they had a suicide problem. Um, and so they enacted a number of different reforms, one of which was um, when their service members left the base on leave for the weekend, they were asked to leave their firearms on the base. So they went on their, their general weekend leave, but the only difference really was that they did not have their firearm with them. Immediately um, after they implemented that reform, suicides dropped by 40% among their soldiers. Uh, and importantly, that 40% decrease happened only on the weekends when that reform was implemented did not affect suicides um, during the weekdays. So uh, my first point is this works. It's been shown elsewhere. And the second reason is uh, really, I'll say it's an anecdote, but but for again, for those of us who are VA providers, we know that this isn't so much an anecdote as it is a common occurrence. I recently had a younger veteran um, on my inpatient service who had uh, uh, multiple uh, deployments to both Iraq and Afghanistan, um, came home, was dealing with um, uh, not just alcohol dependence, but fairly bad PTSD. Um, and he had voiced a concern to me that in the evenings when he's drinking, he has multiple firearms. And at some point he was worried, um, you know, if he had the appropriate trigger, that he would be concerned that he might use one of those firearms on himself. Now, obviously, um, you know, we had a number of different mental health services involved, and we are going to provide him with the best mental health care that um, we can um, in relation to both his alcohol dependence and his post-traumatic stress disorder. But really, those therapies can take some time to show effect. But if I'm putting my best foot forward, I'm going to have a conversation with him about his firearms and what he can do in the short term to keep himself safe. If for no other reason, then that's the concern he voiced to me, um, and I owe it to him 
uh, to have an honest conversation about it. Very poignant. And uh, we'll end on that note. So really appreciate you coming in today, uh, Dr. Simonetti. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll share some links so you can learn more about Dr. Simonetti's work and um, also about our Lethal Means Safety Center here at the Rocky Mountain Myrick and uh, a great webpage with lots of great resources. So please um, share with us any thoughts, comments, feedback, especially about this topic. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. As always, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast, share it with others, and uh, give us a review. Until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention and resilience. 